Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. In 2015, there were 344 homicides in Baltimore City, its highest rate since 1993. 42 of those homicides were in the Northwest District, 37 of which were the result of a fatal shooting. There were 67 additional people shot in the Northwest part of the city that year, the majority of them in the neighborhood of Park Heights. 14 people were shot, four of them fatally, near the intersection of Park Heights Avenue and West Belvedere Avenue, where Pimlico Racetrack was built nearly a century and a half ago. One of those victims was 22-year-old Kevin Jones, and two out of the other young men shot dead on that block were among his wider circle of friends. In total, at least five people who died from gunshot wounds in Park Heights in 2015, Kevin Jones actually knew. Terrell, Smiley, Evan, there have been as many more in the years since. My cousin was a good guy, he was awesome. All he did was work, go to school, and work. All he cared about was his family, that's it, that's all. He wasn't in the streets, he ain't made no trouble for nobody, he wasn't no bully, he wasn't into no gunplay, none of that. All he did was work and go to school, and it's not fair. We just can't get around this. It's, it's, it's so sad, we just can't get around it. And whoever did it, they really don't know. They took all our hearts out, because we all loved him so much. <laughs> The 2018 Washington Post analysis of Baltimore crime data found that between 2007 and 2017, 65% of all homicide cases during that 10-year period were unsolved, with the highest concentration in Northwest Baltimore around Park Heights. According to Baltimore police, all five of those homicide cases, the five people who Kevin Jones knew who were also murdered in 2015 in Park Heights, they remain open and unsolved. The murder of Kevin Jones would very likely be one of those unsolved cases, if not for two things. Five hours after Jones was murdered, a half mile down the road, Keith Davis Jr. was shot in the face by Baltimore police. And by then, homicide detective Mark Vini was on the case. They're absolutely counting on it. That, like, he will run out of material and immaterial resources that, like, Kelly will get tired and Team Keith will have to get back to our lives and like people will get tapped out money-wise. Like they, they absolutely are counting on that. This is Angela Bernico, a member of Team Keith who has attended Keith Davis Jr.'s second and third murder trials. As I write this, 
Angela is sitting amongst the many other supporters who have filled the left side of his Honorable Judge Sylvester Cox's courtroom since Keith's fourth trial began last Friday. I've been with them every day too, but I needed to step out for a few hours to finish this episode. It's a little late, I apologize. Angela and more than a handful of other observers are taking detailed notes. At the end of the day, when court adjourns, they'll snap photos of each page and share them with me so I don't miss anything. But they take notes no matter what, so their social media updates about the proceedings are detailed and accurate and attract more attention to the case. So each and every inconsistency, contradiction, and lie is documented. So any new information, no matter how small a detail, doesn't fall through the cracks. It shouldn't take a village to stop a wrongful conviction and free an innocent person from prison. But here we are, and here we will be, until Keith Davis Jr. comes home. On Wednesday morning, before the jury was brought into the courtroom, Deputy Public Defender Deborah Levy told Judge Cox that the state had been withholding significant information that further undermines the credibility of their case. The previous day, testimony from state witnesses revealed to the defense the names of two people that had never been mentioned before in conjunction with this case. One of them was a former Baltimore police officer with the last name Butler, who'd been in the computer crimes unit. Butler wasn't called as a witness by the state, but his former colleague, Arnold Pittman, testified that the two of them retrieved surveillance footage from a store around the corner from where Kevin Jones was killed. The original footage was saved onto a thumb drive, but as Levy pointed out during cross-examination, the evidence control envelope contained a CD. Pittman testified that the computer crimes unit had just two thumb drives for such a purpose, for the entire unit, so the footage was downloaded onto a disk. He did not watch the footage all the way through, he admitted. He just watched a few seconds at the beginning, then at the middle, and then at the end to make sure it worked. Levy asked, how could he be sure that the footage and evidence on the CD was the same as the original saved onto the thumb drive, especially when the two information retrieval reports that Pittman brought with him that had never been given to the defense? Well, they had Butler's name at the top and neither officer had signed the bottom. Kelly Davis, Keith's wife, she wasn't in court on Tuesday, but when she heard an officer with the last name Butler was mentioned, his strange first name popped into her head, Staccato. She'd seen an article about him in the Baltimore Sun. Kelly was in court the next day. She'd seen an article about him in the Baltimore Sun. Soon, she was dialing Levy's number. Kelly was in court the next morning when Levy informed the court that Staccato Butler had actually been indicted by the state's attorney's office in December 2016. Citing a Baltimore Sun article written by Tim Prudente, Levy said that Butler was accused of using a fake diploma to obtain a pay raise, and prosecutors charged him with theft of at least $10,000, but less than $100,000. This was clear impeachment evidence that spoke to Butler's credibility and honesty, and prosecutors had the duty to disclose what they surely knew since it was their own office that had charged him in the first place. They only dropped the case once he resigned from the force. That's when Levy turned around and extended her arms towards the courtroom galley. She said, it's only because of the defendant's family and the community that the defense learned about Mr. Prudente's article and were able to bring this information to your honor. Like I said, it takes a village. 
Levy wasn't done. The second person named for the very first time in connection to this case was Donnie Long, another security guard who worked with Kevin Jones at Pimlico Racetrack. His name was mentioned during the testimony of Major Michael Singletary, who's the head of security for the Maryland Jockey Club. According to the crime scene log, Singletary and another colleague from the racetrack arrived at the Pimlico parking lot at the same time as the first responding patrol officers. Singletary's testimony at prior trials has backed that up. This has always bothered me, though. Singletary was still at home when he learned one of his officers had been shot. How could he have possibly arrived so quickly? Levy's co-counsel, Brandon Taylor, must have been bothered by that, too, especially when Singletary recalled getting a call from a security lieutenant at approximately 4.50 a.m. That was the time of the first 911 call. How did your lieutenant find out that Kevin Jones had been shot? Taylor asked. The lieutenant had gotten the information from the captain who ran the stables, Singletary said, and the captain had gotten that information from another security guard who worked on the other side of the racetrack at the entrance on Hayward Avenue. That guard's name was Donnie Long. So Donnie Long told the stable captain, who told the lieutenant, who called Major Singletary at 4.50 a.m. and informed him Kevin Jones had been shot on the Pimlico parking lot. According to the police dispatch, Northwest District Officer Paul Heffernan and his sergeant, Richard Brown, were informed for the first time that there was a shooting to respond to at 4.53 a.m. When I was hearing this testimony, I scribbled Donnie Long's name in big letters down in my notepad. Several members of Team Keith mouthed his name with puzzled looks on their faces. As soon as court adjourned, I found Long on Facebook and sent the link to Keith's defense team. His profile photo showed him in his full Pimlico uniform. The next morning, after informing Judge Cox about Staccato Butler, Levy dropped another bomb. Overnight, her team was able to find Donnie Long, and early that morning, her investigator had interviewed him to find out what he knew about the murder of Kevin Jones. It turns out Long did have information, Levy said. Quote, information related to Mr. Jones's criminal history, his prior behavior that would motivate someone to kill him. Not only that, Levy said, but Long had given that information to not one, but two law enforcement officers. That information was never disclosed to the defense, not to Keith's current counsel or to the two other defense attorneys who have represented him over the last four years. I can hear you from here, undisclosed listeners. That's Brady, bitches. As Levy was speaking, I turned my head to look over at Detective Mark Vini, who was sitting in the first row of benches directly behind the prosecutor's table. Vini had been anointed a state agent, and Assistant State Attorney Patrick Seidel had asked that he be able to sit alongside him and his co-counsel, Cynthia Banks. The defense had objected vehemently. A significant part of their case involves impeaching Vini's credibility, and their volume of material has only grown since the trial began. Judge Cox asked Levy to suggest a compromise. She pointed out two rows of benches that were reserved. Quote, there's a bench for prisoners and there's a bench for law enforcement. Vini can sit where it says law enforcement. Are you sure you don't want him to sit with the prisoners? Judge Cox asked. Well, he's not a prisoner yet, Judge. Levy smirked. Judge Cox, he laughed.
Native creates safe, simple, effective products that people use in the bathroom every day. This includes their deodorants in which they use ingredients you know. Less is more with Native. They have fewer, simpler ingredients so you know everything that's in their deodorant. Native has over 7,000 five-star reviews and has been featured in the Today Show, Women's Health, Elle, Good Morning America, Pop Sugar, Nylon, Hello Giggles, and more. Native comes in an unscented formula in the following scents. Coconut and vanilla, which is the most popular scent, lavender and rose, cucumber and mint, and eucalyptus and mint. Now, I've been using the eucalyptus and mint for the past month, and it's been terrific. In Columbia, South Carolina, I usually have to compromise on something. Either my deodorant is too weak in the summer sun, or my deodorant is too harsh in my skin. But native deodorant holds up to the summer heat, is gentle on my skin, and has a pleasant smell that isn't overpowering. But you don't have to take my word for it. Native offers free returns and exchanges in the U.S. And now, Undisclosed listeners can get a special deal on Native. For 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use the promo code UNDISCLOSED during checkout. Again, for 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use the promo code UNDISCLOSED during checkout. made the most of what could be a disadvantage. Sitting so close to the prosecution table gives Vini an additional air of credibility that is not only, I think, unfair to Keith, but completely undeserved. He's been allowed to hear all of the other testimony, apparently because the state sees him as an essential part of their team, given his knowledge. Seidel and Banks are both new to the case. The first three murder trials were prosecuted by Andrea Mason, who was fired by state attorney Marilyn Mosby in August 2018. That's a subject for another podcast episode. Certainly, Vini's knowledge of the state's case is stronger than theirs. His knowledge of the crime, however, of all the evidence, of the victim, Kevin Jones, and the circumstances of his life that might have contributed to the murder, well, you'll hear for yourself soon enough. But I'd argue that having Vini in the courtroom has worked out better for the defense than the state could have anticipated. Because at every opportunity, and there have been many, Keith's attorneys have turned to look at, stand by, point at, and otherwise identify him to the jury as the person responsible for the investigation into Kevin Jones's murder, or the lack thereof. The evidence that exists but begged for follow-up and got none, the evidence that raised even more questions that were not asked, the evidence that was improperly obtained, the evidence that was corrupted, the evidence that was never obtained, the evidence that was considered of no value, the evidence that was never memorialized, all of that goes back to Mark Feeney. The Feeney he was 10 years ago is the Feeney I see now. Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, I felt that he went in there and wanted to find out what happened. Now I think he wants to say, okay, let me get these dudes off the street because I'm going to tell you what happened. Mm -hmm. And that would be the difference. Um, to see and hear the things he's done in a number of cases, not just this, has been very shocking and disappointing. Um, he was a person that I would have called years ago. We had a good relationship. Now, I don't even really need to crack my lips to speak to him. Mm -hmm. um, because I think no matter what side of the fence you're on, the police, when you have the power, you, you can abuse it. Mm -hmm. And what I have viewed him as being in that position um, not just this case, but other cases. You hear other things from your defense attorney, other defense attorneys talk. 
and you know, unfortunately, doesn't have the greatest reputation. Um, at first, you're trying to sit down and say, maybe, maybe, maybe this, maybe that. But when you keep hearing the same sort of issues over and over and over again, it does become concerning to me. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's a reflection of the homicide department in general or an era of the homicide department? Uh, I think there were some people that that was who they were, that there were other ones that I get along with great who've been there many years who were like, you know what, the guy didn't do it. And so we're going to do it. And they play strictly, they play ball the correct way. I was told about a year ago by an officer that 20% of the officers in the BPD are the greatest people no matter what. You can put them in the middle of a million dollars and they would take a dime. Mm -hmm. And then 20% are stone cold criminals, some of the worst people you'd ever want to meet. Mm -hmm. And there's a, then there's the rest, the 60%, that if you put them with the bad cops, they're going to do bad things. Mm -hmm. If you put them with good police officers, they'll do good things. Mm -hmm. And so when that came from a police officer, I was like, wow, okay. I think that we do have, they did have an era where they were kind of running loose and kind of doing what they wanted to. Uh, but I also think there's a tremendous amount of pressure on homicide detectives, yeah. especially in Baltimore City. I've just been extremely disappointed in the things I've heard. I just think I heard things I found out. This is Ivan Bates, a longtime criminal defense attorney and former prosecutor who ran against Marilyn Mosby in the 2018 state attorney's race. You might recognize him from HBO's The Case Against Adnan Syed. Funnily enough, the third man in the 2018 race to be chief prosecutor of Baltimore City, Thiru Vinyaraja, who sent Mark Vini to Woodlawn Public Library to find useless Steve to testify at Adnan's post-conviction relief hearing. Smaltimore. Anyway, Ivan Bates is one of several people who have stopped by Judge Sylvester Cox's courtroom this week to watch some of Keith's trial. Kelly calls him her big brother. He checks in on her every couple of days just to make sure she's doing okay. When it became clear that Marilyn Mosby was going to try Keith for the fourth time for Kevin Jones's murder, Ivan went out to visit Keith in jail and encouraged him to have the public defender's office take his case this time around. The PD's office is able to hire their own experts, which Keith has never had before, and Ivan was confident that Deborah Levy would handle his case herself. Ivan described Levy to me as a phenomenal trial lawyer who walks into the courtroom and smacks you in the mouth. Anyway, we'll hear more from Ivan in a bit. I want you to hear from Mark Vini, though. Here's prosecutor Andrea Mason questioning Vini at the second murder trial. What time did you receive the information about this particular incident? Um, this particular incident, we were on a midnight shift. Uh, the homicide unit was uh, notified around five o'clock uh, at the five o'clock hour five o'clock a.m. hour that there was that our services was needed in the 5200 block of Park Heights Avenue. Are you familiar with that area? Um, to some extent. Hmm. Vini, according to my research, actually lived in Park Heights for a long period of time. He might have even grown up there. His parents still own a home in the neighborhood, although it's a little south of Pimlico. And of course, Vini has been a Baltimore police officer for 25 years. But already. Now, when you arrive on a scene, um, what, what do you do? So, uh, if you can imagine, um, as a homicide detective, when you arrive on a scene, um, you don't know what to expect besides the fact that there's, a, there's going to, there's a death. 
And uh, once you get there, you want to try to discover first and foremost the manner of that death. Is it a homicide? Is it a suicide? Is it a death of natural causes? So you really don't know what to expect. So you go there with an open mind, and once you arrive, you start uh, immediately assessing the scene. Sometimes before you get to a scene, you may be armed with, with information that otherwise you would have obtained once you got there, such as in this incident, um, it was relayed that a male was shot. So, um, by, so you already know going in that you're dealing with potentially someone that was just shot. And uh, so you just prepare your mind for, for that. And once you see the environment that it occurred in, and when I say environment, the landscape where the, where the body is, you start thinking uh, and assessing that environment for uh, physical or eyewitness evidence. Now, Park Heights and West Belvedere is a major intersection in the neighborhood and just up the block from where dozens of shootings occur every year. Surely there are City Watch CCTV cameras somewhere nearby, right? City Watch is staffed largely by current and retired BPD officers for a reason, and those cameras are monitored and can be remotely controlled if an incident occurs within range. Here's Vini again at Keith's first murder trial in front of Judge Alfred Nance. Did you have an occasion to observe whether there were any cameras in the area? Um, yes. And tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury, how did you go about that and what did you discover? So when we're en route to an incident like that, once um, it's, it's, it's known that there was a shooting, um, we have something called City Watch cameras. So City Watch cameras will immediately pan. They can control from the center of Baltimore, they can control any city, any camera in the city, and they will advise you whether or not cameras in the area captured anything. Um, um, they had advised me that there was uh, cameras at Park Heights and Belvedere, but for, for whatever reason, they were trained in the direction of some trees and all, they, all it um, captured was the top of the trees and it did not catch anything relative to this investigation. Next question, please. Did you ever review that uh, City Watch video? No. Now, the camera uh, at Park Heights and Belvedere, do you know which corner of the intersection it was on or is it on a building? I can't recall exactly. It's right there on the corner of uh, Park Heights and Belvedere. Thank you. I don't know. Exactly. Thank you. This has been Vini's explanation at every trial so far as to why no CCTV footage was ever obtained. Prosecutor Mason sounded a little surprised by his answer, though. Here's what she told Judge Nance in a very hushed, hushed, hushed voice during a bench conference right after this. I've amplified the audio. So Mason didn't realize it, but Mark Vini didn't bother to view CCTV footage himself even though City Watch has an actual office of their own within BPD headquarters, just like the homicide unit. That's actually where officers go to request footage. You can even watch it there. Just an elevator ride away for 30 days until that footage is taped over. It's also worth noting that the force investigation team detectives who investigated the police-involved shooting and the attempted armed robbery in Keith's first case, they also didn't request CCTV footage. Even though Charles Holden, the hack driver, told detectives that the robber hopped in his vehicle at, where else? Park Heights and West Belvedere. 
Hell, if Vini actually called down to City Watch and the officer who picked up was like, ugh, the camera was pointed at trees. Certainly they would have taken that opportunity to adjust its angle so it would actually capture the street below instead of the lovely summer foliage. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. Okay, so what about that surveillance footage I mentioned earlier in the episode that Arnold Pittman and Staccato Butler, the officer with the fake diploma, that they obtained from a camera outside a convenience store on Park Heights Avenue, around the corner from where Kevin Jones was shot? They actually got footage from a camera inside the store as well. One thing we learned from Mr. Pittman's testimony this week, though, there were actually 14 cameras connected to the security system, but Vini only told Pittman to download an hour and a half from two specific cameras. And so that's all Pittman got. Vini must have determined that they were the cameras that captured something valuable for his investigation. Actually, that's not exactly true. Here's Detective Vini at the first murder trial. Other than the City Watch camera, um, were there any other cameras that you um, attempted to locate in the area? Yes. Tell the jury about that, please. Um, the next day I went back. Uh, and I realized that there was a um, convenience store that was open 24 hours and also a store, um, I believe the name of it is Five Star. Um, I noticed that they had surveillance cameras in there, so I went back and had our computer crimes lab um, recover the video from there. Were you present when that video was recovered? Um, yes. And did you review that video? Yes. Was there anything that you would determine was of any evidentiary value on the, either of those videos? No. So there were actually two stores with cameras that captured footage that Vini determined were not valuable to his investigation. Uh, to be sure, let's hear what he said at the second murder trial in front of Judge Lynn Stewart Mays. So realizing that Park Heights intersected with Belvedere, I went to a couple of the stores and I found two in particular that had surveillance cameras. So what I did was I went back to my office and I put in a, requ a request for the, um, for the appropriate detectives to come out to uh, download the footage from those cameras so that I could look at them later to see if maybe they had any value towards this offense. Well, Lindy, did you have an opportunity to review that footage? Yes. And what, if anything, of value did you find on that, on that video? I didn't find anything of evidentiary value. Do you recall um, what time the, times the videos were? I guess I'm at, did they, is it like a 24-hour period? Is it? So, so what I did was I put in a request for it 
to um, for it to for us to capture surveillance from the cameras um, a couple hours prior to the offense up to uh, 12 in the afternoon. And you all that video? Yes. Up until this week, when Pittman took the stand to introduce the surveillance footage at Keith Davis Jr.'s fourth trial, it had never actually been part of the state's case at all. And until midway through the third trial, the defense did not know it existed. Here's Megan Kenny, a member of Team Keith, explaining exactly what I mean by that. Three trials, there was... The, the, we knew that this existed... We didn't know where it was, hadn't seen it. Well, I wouldn't have seen it anyways, but like yeah. it, it wasn't it wasn't handed over to the defense, but it but it to the state at that at those three trials up until the screeching halt. They said, "Doesn't matter, you don't need you know, uh, it, there's no evidentiary value anyways." Yeah. Like what's the big deal? Like, okay, so the the disc that we sent you didn't work. It's not whatever. There's a glitch. It doesn't matter. There's nothing on it. Don't worry about it. Stop talking right. about this thing. That's enough to be considered disclosing it to the defense. Basically. Right. represented by defense attorney Natalie Finneger at his third trial, and Vini was actually on the stand testifying to it not having any evidentiary value when Finneger noticed something. It brought the proceedings to a halt. The footage that had been discussed but dismissed as worthless at the previous trials suddenly was physically being entered into evidence on a disc that Finneger had never seen before. Did you have an opportunity to review those videos? Yes. Uh, did you gather any information that was helpful to the investigation? No. Detective Vini, I'll ask you if you recognize first stage 40. Yeah, this is one of the videos, one of the CDs. This one is one of the videos that we have recovered. Stage 41. This is a, a CD from the uh, CCTV unit uh, relative to the uh, videos. And stage 42. Uh, could we just approach, please? You may. Thank you for coming in different cameras. Okay, what? Um, it's from a different camera. I'm, I'm trying to figure out strategizing in a very quick way, you know, and I need to make sure I preserve the record and do all the right things, but I've never been provided copies of those videos. So I actually thought that they had been destroyed, which is why in my jury instruction request, I actually put a missing evidence instruction request because that I thought would be relevant after his testimony. Um, I am virtually positive they've never been provided to me, and they've never been testified to, they've never been present in court before and presented to the witness. It's been testified that he had viewed them, but he has never been brought to court before and identified that they existed. I know I've never seen them. That I'm 100% sure of. I, I, Ms. 
Finnegar just brought this to my attention and I said I would have to check my discovery because I can't imagine why I would not have provided them. They've been provided to counsel in the past. So, but I would need a break. I have my discovery here. I can also say, say, I can also say that although it's a visa, if there's nothing on them, I don't understand. The problem is that, so if, if there's something that could have captured the scene at the time, right, but there's nothing on that, Maybe somebody walks by the drink. You know, it, it's such a murky area about what's exculpatory and what's not exculpatory. And the way I've always operated is if they have evidence, I really want to see the evidence and be able to view the evidence. So I've always wanted those videos, but it was my understanding they didn't exist. So you asked for them? I asked for for all discovery and I asked... But specifically, did you ask for those videos since you wanted those videos? I didn't because the information I received is actually that they that they had not been produced, that the CCTV... Who he testified the information? Who the testified in the last trial, you and I can provide that, that he called CCTV and he asked them over the phone and they said that the CCTV did not, was aimed towards the trees and so couldn't provide a clear view. Um, and therefore, he did not get a copy of the CD. That, that's the, that was what was testified to, and it wasn't brought to court. So I, I believe that the videos didn't exist. Well, he didn't I have think, a, just because he says he didn't have a clear copy. No, they didn't. Know. Have, I mean, he didn't have a copy that no, wasn't. No, no, no. There wasn't a clear sight, so they didn't get the video because he was being told in real time while he was on the scene that the CCTV was not showing the area that it showed trees. Uh, maybe, maybe I can straighten this up. This is actually not for this case, right? Because it has, I know. It's got the same CC. It does have the same CC. So have you looked at these? I have not looked at this one because I didn't know it existed either. I, I, I well, did ask. If you ask, didn't know that it existed, then how did you produce I, it to them? I will, I will probably. Right. The whole situation was really confusing. This particular bench conference lasted forever. Then it was determined the footage needed to actually be watched. Judge Althea Handy was having a really hard time grasping why the sudden appearance of surveillance footage at a third murder trial might be alarming to Keith's attorney. She started to get it once Finnegar's law clerks reported back that the footage actually appeared to show the victim, Kevin Jones, walking to work. Judge Handy then allowed Finnegar to show the footage in the courtroom outside the presence of the jury so Keith could see it and everyone else did too. Trailing about 30 seconds behind Kevin Jones was someone in a black t-shirt and jeans whose face is definitely too blurry to see, especially once he pulls on a mask. Again, the person pulls on a mask. This is the footage that Mark Vini described at three trials as having no evidentiary value. Kevin Jones's mother and other family members were in the courtroom seeing this video for the first time. This was on a Friday in June 2018. Handy gave Finnegar the weekend to look at the video more closely to see how she might have been able to use it had she seen it earlier, and very likely to prepare a motion to dismiss the case. I was still living in New York at the time, and I came down to Baltimore that Monday and saw the video for myself for the first time. I've watched it dozens of times since. Kevin Jones is instantly recognizable. The guy who's following him, who's wearing the generic black t-shirt, jeans, and pulling on a mask, he really honestly could have been anyone. In that way that someone you don't recognize, have never seen before in your entire life, could be anyone. But it was not, and is not, Keith Davis Jr. Here's Kelly. 
so you sort of felt worried that, okay, yes, this is a huge discovery violation. Mm -hmm. However, what implication could this have in the sort of like longer term? I if thought it, comes in? it would, was powerful the fact that they just withheld it and tried to sneak it in. Right. I thought, I don't give a damn what is on the tape because the fact that they held on to it is exculpatory in itself. The fact that they held on to it, reviewed it, said we reviewed it, stamped it, claimed it on the stand multiple times, I looked at it. There's nothing of evidentiary value on there. Was way more powerful. I don't give a damn if it was Donald Trump committing this murder. Whatever is on there, you knew for a fact that you had this in your possession. You looked at it enough to know that it was not Keith. You also probably did whatever the hell you could to try to make it Keith. And when you realized that it was wasn't Keith and you couldn't make it with Keith, you abandoned it. And then you only threw it in here now because you knew that his defense team was going to tear your ass apart for not getting that CCTV footage. So I thought, we don't need to look at this tape. We don't need to. I mean, we could look at it see what's on there. What we saw was that it wasn't Keith. But what we did see is that there are things in that video that can be completely flipped around. And my thing was, it is more powerful to just let a jury instruction let the jury know here's a piece of evidence you don't know what it is we don't know what it is but the fact that it's been in the state's possession for three years that they reviewed it you have to look at this that this is something that does not help their case right that is way more powerful kelly was worried and she had every reason to be after this many years and she was right to be too after Finnegar's motion to dismiss was denied by Judge Handy, Vini testified under cross-examination. Up until Friday, you testified that they had no investigatory value, correct? Uh, up until that time. Up until Friday? Yes. Okay. Does that mean that you consider them to have investigatory value today? Uh, I'm not going to stand in... Um, I'm not going to characterize the uh, videos. That that would be up for the jury to characterize and place whether or not they have value on them. Uh, well, you're an experienced homicide detective, correct? Yes. And part of your job is to look at evidence? Yes. And part of your job is to look at that evidence and make decisions that could be used in your investigation. Is that correct? Yes. I'm asking you, do you have a different opinion about these videos today? I have an opinion that uh, they're worthy of being played for the jury and they will make their determination as to whether the videos have relevance towards this investigation. Well, let me ask you this, Detective. You testified in matters, prior proceedings with regards to these videos, correct? Yes. You testified back in October of 2017? Yes. You testified that it didn't have any invest these videos didn't have any investigatory value, is that correct? At that time. And you testified in May? At that time, yes. And, and at that time, they didn't have any investigatory value, at, correct? At, at that time. Is there anything about the videos that you believe have changed? So what happens is, with a homicide investigation... I'm asking you, Detective, is there anything about these videos that have changed? Have you seen them since then, and they're different? Um, they may have a different meaning now. Okay. Yes, they may have a different they meaning They may have now. a different meaning now. Yes. But the videos themselves haven't changed. No. When's the last time you saw the video? Did you see it over the weekend? Uh... No. Did you see it on Friday? No. Did you see it today? Uh, no. What conversations have you had over the weekend regarding these videos? Um, I was away over the weekend. Okay. What about on Friday? Did you have conversations regarding these videos? No. With no? 
No, I just knew that the videos was, uh, well, when you all objected or you all were talking about the videos or whatever, I mean, when you all was in here. Okay, so when we all were talking about the videos and I objected, then you figured something's different with this video, is that correct? I make no conclusions. Okay. I, I, don't, I don't assume anything. Um, we in a court of right, law we're in court. and the judge, I mean, the jury makes those decisions, not That's me. That's right. And you're under oath, right? Yes. Okay. And today, you're saying right now, maybe there's some investigatory value to them. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Keith Davis Jr.'s third trial ended with a hung jury. The state has already entered it into evidence at Keith's fourth trial, and Mark Vini is expected to testify about its content, which he, on three occasions, under oath, described as being of no value to his investigation. But now, the state says that man with a mask, that's Keith Davis Jr. Monday on Undisclosed. Okay, I want to make this real quick so Hannah McCarthy, patient angel slash sound editor, can finish this episode up and I can go to bed. Thank you so much to Rabia, Susan, and Colin for letting me borrow the mic for a few months so I could help shine a light on Keith's case. Methel Talhan, thank you for helping me get this project done. I really appreciate you for that. Thank you to all you listeners for caring about this case and for caring about justice. Team Keith, Peggy, Megan, Angela, Chris, Zach, Beth, anybody else I may have missed that sits on the left side of the courtroom behind the defense, thank you for keeping an eye on my facial expressions and helping me maintain access to Judge Cox's courtroom. So far, it's still kind of early. (laughs) Kelly Davis, your compassion is a gift and I am grateful to know you. And Keith Davis Jr., do your wife a solid and take that coat off and put on a sweater.